Well, take your Bibles if you would. Turn to Luke chapter 19. That's where we're going to eventually make our way to the story of the triumphal entry. But no portion of a story is as good, it, it, it leads up to uh, the story itself that we're going to be in today. So I think it's really important that when we understand the gospel and the story and the Passion Week, that we understand it in light of all the theology, in light of all the historical events that have occurred to bring it to this point. And I don't know, as, as you begin to start thinking about Easter, now uh, you understand the Passion Week, this is day one of the Passion Week, the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. Today we're going to highlight the, passion, or the, the triumphal entry, we're going to get into a little bit, just touch briefly on the occurrences of Monday and Tuesday of the Passion Week as you uh, continue to reflect throughout your week. But I've been significantly advantaged to have a friend, Dr. Doug Bookman, uh, who has spent his life harmonizing and understanding the life of Christ. And so we're going to piece various stories of these Gospels together to help us understand the significance of the moment when Jesus comes riding in on the donkey and presents himself as the king. Now there's a couple things that we have to tuck away historically in the back of our mind to appreciate the magnitude of this event. One of them is the understanding of the picture of Rome. Now, if you've read any Roman history books or appreciated various components of history, the, you'll, you'll recognize at this time period in history, Rome as an empire is not significantly old. There's been a, no, a few different rulers that have come, but they are, they are one thing. The ruler of Rome is always one thing, paranoid. He is paranoid that someone at some moment is going to rise up and is going to take his place and take his empire away. They were so paranoid various, in various components of the life history of these Roman Caesars that they would often kill at a moment's notice in fa even family members who would rival or take away that throne. So you can only imagine at this kind of heightened perspective, Rome is on alert. And there was two things, by the way, that it was important for them to do. One, if you were in the area of Jerusalem, there could be no other area in the Roman Empire of all areas that existed that was more cantankerous, that was filled with people who would be so stubborn and stand up to the Roman government than the Jewish people. They were always, in a sense, a thorn in the side of the Roman Empire. So what they would desire is they, one, they wanted to keep the peace, which is why they kept Roman procurators like Pilate over the area of Judea. And their one sole purpose is keep the peace and put down rebellion. And Rome was known for one thing in its history. It was more remarkable than any other, uh, than any other time period is that if there was sedition, if there was a, a ruler who was going to come and take advantage of saying, now I'm going to rule, Rome was going to put it down and they were going to put it down fast. Because they wanted to send a message to the people of all the regions of the Roman Empire, if you mess with Rome you're going to die. And you're not just going to die some easy death, it's going to be some gruesome, bloody excursion, and you will be an example to the rest of everyone else so that you could say, do not ever stand up to Rome. Now put yourself in the place of a Jewish individual coming from this backdrop of the intertestamental time period. Here's, a, here's another historical fact that I think it helps as we understand this narrative in the Gospel of Luke. You're always confronted with these people, the Pharisees and Sadducees, and no doubt today we're going to be confronted with them again. 
The Pharisees and Sadducees grew up out of the intertestamental time period. If you looked, by the way, back in uh, Ezekiel 44, verse 15, you have this reality of Zadok the high priest, who was part of ruling the Temple Mount. Well, the Sadducees, by the way, were at least want to convince themselves that, that they are the historical descendants of the Zadokites, which is why the Sadducees ruled the Temple Mount. Now keep this in mind. They weren't the only people who were ruling, but of the Sadducees, the, the normal Jewish people could not stand them. They were equally hated among all Jewish people. They were swindlers. They would, people would come to the, to the Jewish feast at the Passover and any other time they came. And now when they had to get a Passover lamb, they were making deals with the shepherds outside so that they could say, ah, that lamb doesn't really look good. But I know a shop dealer right down here. Uh, if you go ahead and go grab a lamb from him. And they were getting kickbacks off the Jewish people who were coming to legitimately sacrifice at the temple. Now, you can imagine, if you were a Jewish person, you think you'd be excited about that? No, I mean, not like we can understand governmental authorities taking things from us of money circumstances, can we? No, I, I don't think we could. But, this is what was going on with the Sadducees. So the Jewish individuals struggled because there was a hatred for the Sadducees. Then you have the Pharisees, who also grew up out of the intertestamental period. In line with the fact, and the absence of a temple... Now, all of a sudden, the Pharisees were, the, were actually loved by the Jewish people in various, in various perspectives because these were the keepers of the law. They could do what you as a normal person could never devote yourself to doing, a lifetime of commitment to the law. They would study the law. That's why you always hear these denouncements of the scribes and Pharisees. They spent their lifetime saying, Oh, this is what the law says, and then for you to guard over against what the law says, they put a tradition around it, and then they put some commentary around that. And then when Jesus came, by the way, this is why he would often say in the Gospels, and you can account for this in many occasions in the four Gospels, you have heard it said unto you, but I say unto you. And what is he doing with that? He is confronting the traditional dynamic of the law because the idea of the law became so central in the Jewish faith that when Jesus came, what did he come to extinguish? The perspective that works righteousness could save you. The law wasn't wrong, but he came to fulfill the law. And yet the Pharisees were saying, no, 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 if you keep the law, then you'll be saved. On one of the trips to Israel, I was uh, I, I was fascinated by sitting by a, a Jewish individual, a, an Orthodox Jewish uh, lady who I began to witness uh, to with the gospel. And I remember asking her, you know, so, so what do you need to do to be saved? And I'll tell you, I swear it was like it was coming straight out of the New Testament. You have, she looked at me and said, well, yeah, you keep the law. And you think about that mindset. Generations later, where the Jewish people are still struggling with being keepers of the law and a works-based righteousness. So you, you, you tuck these two things away. Rome is a huge presence in the life of the Jewish people. They weren't very happy about that. They had to deal with that. They had the Pharisaic system, although there was an element where the Pharisaic system would run the synagogues. Now, if you were in trouble with the Pharisee, you see this in the New Testament, uh, here's one of the things they controlled the synagogue. And if you got kicked out of the synagogue, that was a big deal for your life. 
The synagogue, in some sense, if you could make it a comparable reality to life in the New Testament church. It was the hub of all family activity. It was the place where you got taught. It was where you heard various things. You caught up on various things. The, the life in the synagogue, if you got put out of the synagogue, was horrific to think about. So they had this Pharisaic system. You had the Sadducean system. Then you had the oppression of Rome. And you have all of this going on in the backdrop. And I want to I want to bring us as we think about the triumphal entry. I want to take us back to John chapter 10 for a moment prior to getting to this because of various uh, parallels in the Gospels. In John chapter 10 verse 22, you notice this is what John records uh, in months earlier, but I want you to see how it leads to the point of where we are in the triumphal entry today. John 10 22 says this, at the time of the feast of dedication, that took place at Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and they said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. At that particular moment, in that declaration, notice what happened in verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus simply asked them, for what things that I have done or for what things that I have said do you now stone me for? And they said, we're not stoning you because of the works that you do, because we can't deny that they are certainly miraculous. What we stone you for is the very blasphemous reality that you would say, I and the Father are one. What was Jesus doing? Now, Jesus didn't come out and say, by the way, uh, yes, I'm the Messiah. You notice he didn't say that. He simply made a declaration that they would understand because what was going on in the life of the Pharisaic and Sadducean system was they were trying to catch Jesus at every single moment so that if he claimed himself to be Messiah, there was a potential ruler switch for Rome. They could now pounce on him and take him and arrest him and put him to prison. Now back up even just a moment. Just uh, There's so many things going on in this story and I'm going to try to highlight a few. Even when Jesus came, by the way, at the first time when he cleansed the temple at the very early part of Jesus' ministry, you could imagine that the Pharisaic system and the Sadducean system being at odds with each other, they didn't really like each other. And so when Jesus comes in and he cleanses the temple, and it was kind of like in your face to the Sadducees. And even the Pharisees could be kind of like, this could be our guy. And now you're going to see Jesus on the, on, on the Monday and Tuesday go and cleanse the temple a second time. And, he's going to, and something's going to happen in the life of the Pharisees and the Sadducees where they combine efforts. And in this case, they said, tell us who you are plainly. And, and they said, they recognized what he was saying. You're saying you're God, and we cannot stand for that. Now follow along at, at, the, very, uh, at the very ending point of this story in John chapter 10. 
In verse 39, it says, and again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands, and he went again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. Now, just tuck a historical reality away, Jesus is going to Perea right across the Jordan, and why would he do that? Because the, because the Roman system was broken up into various hierarchies or ruling, uh, ruling areas or ruling regions. In the area of Judea, you had, you had Pontius Pilate organized as a procurator, trying to keep the peace, put down rebellion, and then you had Herod's son to the very far north. You had Herod Philip. So don't get, don't get too stirred up all of a sudden. You're going to have to figure out when you read the New Testament, which Herod are we talking about? Okay? Because Herod was more like a title than it was a name. So you have Herod Philip. And then in Perea and over Galilee, you had Herod Antipas. And this is the one that we're most familiar with even during the time of Jesus' trial. Because all of a sudden when they heard that Jesus was a Galilean and they heard that Herod Antipas was in town, they said, well, maybe I can just sidestep this. And then Pilate tried to push him off to Herod Antipas. But in this case, he goes to Perea. Why? Because he knows the Jewish rulers of the Judean area of Jerusalem wanted him dead. And if he could keep himself just out of the reach of this particular group of people for a time period, he knew he would go back. But he retreats to Perea, and that's where John uh, really gives us this account. And then in the Gospels, really Luke and John talk about the ministry that was going on in Perea. Matthew and Mark don't really have a ton to say about it, but Luke and John really give us a history of the miracles and the messages that were going on in Perea. Now, while he was in Perea, think about this. He's in Perea. He's, he's doing ministries. Now, this is the place where John the Baptist was, and r- recognize this. The Jewish people loved John the Baptist. They loved him. They all considered him to be a prophet. In fact, Jesus is going to use that on the Temple Mount when he goes and he rules the temple and he asks a question to the Pharisees and to the Jewish people who would, who would come. Now, if you switch over, switch back to Luke chapter 13. While Jesus was in Perea, ministering, doing miracles, all kinds of things, in, in Luke chapter 13, if you turn there, and you're going to have to have your Bible hand or your, or your phone and your fingers will have to be fast uh, because the Gospels account of these parallel passages help us make sense of the enormity of this triumphal entry. Luke chapter 13, while he was there, at that very same hour, while he was in Perea, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, Herod wants to kill you. Pause for a minute. They want to lure him back to Judea. Of course, you can only understand why. Jesus' life is on the line. They have finally gotten to points in Jesus' ministry and the popularity of the crowds. They they have had enough and these Pharisees are trying to lure him back. And then Jesus says, uh, and and then it's said in verse 32, and he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Now, do you see a foreshadowing here? Months before. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, 
And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is months earlier in Perea. Jesus is in Perea, and you fast forward and you realize, okay, something happened in Perea that got Jesus back up, and all of a sudden word comes from Mary. Somebody came and told Jesus, your beloved Lazarus is sick. Jesus tarries in Perea a a bit longer, and he comes, and you know the whole story. We won't talk too much about that. You're familiar with it. Jesus comes and does something, one of the most amazing miracles that he had done uh, at this point. And he takes a man who was legitimately, by the way, they waited for the fourth day because at that point the tomb is sealed and he is certifiably dead. Okay, No one would be like, well, I don't know. It's in that first three days and he was wrapped up and maybe he was in a comatose and maybe we didn't realize he was unconscious and all of a sudden he came out of the tomb. No, no, no. Everybody in Jewish culture understood that on the fourth day, the tomb, was, the, the, the tomb was sealed, they were certifiably dead, and Jesus comes, and you know the story, Mary comes out to him, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. Could you even imagine the stir that that would have caused amongst the Jewish people just over the hilltop from Jerusalem? I mean, Jesus makes his way back in light of knowing that his life is on the line. He comes back, and, and, and all of a sudden, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And as a result of this account, which is, which is quite amazing, uh, and you see it in John eleven forty five. 45, notice this. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees, and they told them what Jesus had done. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Now, catch this. And the Romans will come and take both our place and our nation. Now, where do you think the focus was of the Jewish people? We don't want to get kicked out of our land, and we don't want to be extinguished as a people group. And if you know anything about Jewish history, one thing you can understand, there's a lot of people groups that have tried to extinguish the Jews over the history that they, that they have had. And they were concerned about this. And now, all of a sudden, Jesus was a man on the run. In John eleven fifty four, here's what it says. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now remember, he comes from Perea. Lazarus is dead. He comes back and he raises Lazarus. All of a sudden, the popularity of the crowd. Can you imagine the buzz that was going around thinking, I mean, we just saw Lazarus. He was dead, but he's now alive. I mean, I think if he was at the dinner table for after a meal, I mean, you just couldn't stop staring. I mean, I don't know if you'd be able to eat because you're thinking, you have so many questions. What was it like? How did, the, how did this work? All of this was going around and Jesus was recognized as the one, the prophet, that was like no other prophet. And now he's a prophet on the run as a fugitive from the Pharisees, from the Romans, who, by the way, I mean, the Pharisees knew if they could be in league with the Romans, they could hand over to, uh, Jesus to the Romans and they would hopefully do the dirty work, which eventually happened. And they put him to death on a Roman cross Jesus there moved north from this. Now, this is really important because this creates the stage and setting of the triumphal entry. Jesus, with all this popularity, 
Okay? I loved, uh, when I was with Doug in Israel, he would, always say, he would always say this about the story of Lazarus. He said, if you were a nation that wanted a kingdom and you were ruled by Rome and you knew someone was going to come in and be a new ruler and you were going to have to fight against Rome, you definitely want the guy who can raise the dead on your side. Because you wouldn't have to worry about anything. Ah, so what if I die? He'll just raise me up. See, so the popularity of Jesus began to explode and the hostility of the Pharisees continued to fester. Jesus goes up into Ephraim. Now, why would he do that? Just like he went to Perea to get out of the reach of, of, uh, of, of those Judean Pharisees, now he recognized, now by the way, the healing of Lazarus happened about six to eight weeks prior to the event of the Passover. So six to eight weeks prior to this, this raising of Lazarus comes to place. And now he heads to Ephraim. Why would he do that? Well, because Ephraim was on the northern border between Ephraim and Samaria. And if you were a Jew that was coming down to Passover, which all the Passover pilgrims did, you never typically went through Samaria predominantly because it was dangerous. The Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. And, but... Isn't it interesting, by way of God's providence, Jesus happened to go to Samaria prior to that? Jesus had standing in Samaria. Jesus knew. Now, can you just tuck this away for a moment in your own mind? Jesus was the single most intelligently wise human individual who ever lived on the face of the planet. Completely righteous. That's why we say he's the second Adam. He's not, he, is, he had never sinned. He was so wise, he understood his messian the messianic message to such a degree that he knew all the intricate parts of the Old Testament to understand that they were speaking about him. He goes into Samaria. He eludes all of these Pharisaic systems who were out for him. He travels, and it says uh, in this particular text, after it says that he didn't walk anymore openly, in John eleven fifty five. It says, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus, and notice the big question at the Passover. Here's what it was. Verse number 56, they were whispering and saying to each other as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will come? Will he come to the feast? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders, if anyone were, knew, were to knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Now, I mean, in the drama that unfolds up to this point, even the people of Jerusalem were whispering in light in, as they were in the temple because they knew that if anybody claimed to know where this man was, even their life would be at stake. They're just clawing at, tell us where he is. Jesus retreats. You notice on these maps, he retreats. It's just, you know, a lot of times you may not use the, the, the maps in the back of your Bible, but I will tell you they're there for a reason. Because geographically speaking, for you to understand the regions and the areas that Jesus would go to and why he went there. He went to Ephraim, and he went, it says, he went through the midst of, or through the midst of Samaria and up into Galilee. Why would he do that? Well, Jesus knew coming from Galilee of, of, of years of spending time up there that the Galilean Passover Jews were now coming down to Jerusalem. The one time where they were, gonna, they were three times a year, men were called to go to Jerusalem. And the Passover was, was one of the big ones. 
The Passover pilgrims would come in a break, in, in a sense, and they would go up to the region of the Mount Carmel, and they would be walking on. There was two routes, one called the Ridge Route that went through Samaria. No one would take that, so they took the long way around and went through Perea because it was safer. And they went down uh, near Jericho. And so Jesus joins up with the Passover pilgrims. Why does he do that? Because now Jesus begins to teach. Notice, this is the time period of the teaching where he goes up through, uh, through Samaria and he heals the ten lepers. This is Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 9, which he, by the way, then says to the lepers, go to the priests. Now, he knows what he's doing. Jesus is so wise at setting his own stage, knowing that he came to sacrifice himself for the people. The teaching of the imminency of the cross. I mean, even just notice back in Luke chapter 19, uh, uh, well, we'll, you you hear this imminence of the kingdom. Notice this. And this is once they get to Perea and they're heading up from Jericho to Jerusalem. In verse number 11 and verse 19, it says, And they heard these things, that Jesus was teaching about the kingdom, and he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. I mean, I wonder how many times Jesus was like, guys, we talked about this. I'm going to die. There was a sense in which the horrific reality that the disciples themselves struggled with, that their, that their, their, their leader, their rabbi, their teacher, the one they called Messiah, would die and he would no longer be with them. It just it was unfathomable to them. He teaches about the kingdom because, now, think of what's going on. They traveled in huge crowds of Passover pilgrims. By the way, this is why Jesus could get lost when he was little. You just expect that he was with some family you knew. Jesus is there. Could you imagine being amongst the throng of Passover pilgrims heading down to Jericho? And all of a sudden, you get word. There's this Nazarene, and he's doing miracles like like three blocks ahead of you. What would you do? (laughs) You're like, uh, I'm going to go check this out. I'll be back in a, I don't know. I just want to see what's going on. The heightened level awareness of what was going on in Jesus' messianic ministry during this time period as he moved closer and closer and closer to his own death, he was heightening and heightening and heightening this reality. Jesus gives the parables on prayer. The rich young ruler comes to him. And he, and, he, and he says, and he's so saddened by this reality that he just could not give up his earthly possessions. And again, Jesus, in Luke, uh, Luke 18, in Matthew 20, accounts to his disciples, I'm going to die. And what that tells me is that even the disciples, they just struggled with this reality. He's at Jericho, he heals blind Bartimaeus, and all of a sudden, blind Bartimaeus is likely traveling with him. And then all of a sudden, could you imagine this little guy Zacchaeus, who's stuck up in the tree, and Jesus looks up at him and says, I'm going to go to your house. I mean, Jesus was in Perea, the Pharisees had already come there. I mean, this was like in your face, like, I'm going to save whoever is willing to repent and trust in me. That is the requirement. He sets out for Jerusalem, and he arrives there in in Luke chapter 19, right preceding the triumphal entry. Jesus is teaching along the way. He's doing miracles along the way. The crowd is excited. You could only imagine what was going on. And remember, what was the question that was being asked? Will he 
come to the Passover. Because everyone's saying if he comes, they know they want him dead. Do you think he'll come? Even light, in light of the fact that they, they all want him dead. Friday, he makes uh, his way up the Jericho descent. And he makes his way just to the top of, just on the other side of the Mount of Olives. If you were to go just to the top of the Mount of Olives, you could see the, the incredible nature of this huge Herodian temple that was such a sight to see. He stops. He likely stops here on Friday night, and this is where this meal that happens at, at, at Bethphage and Bethany. All of a sudden, Mary comes and anoints him. And remember that little story of account right at the very end, who is really a little upset at this? Judas. She takes this pure, this, this pounds of pure nard, she anoints Jesus' feet, and Judas comes and says, what a waste! And Jesus says, and Jesus rebukes him. You know, it's interesting from that point forward, you see G uh, Judas openly then beginning to go and make deals with the Pharisees, with the high priests, and Judas had long was frustrated, and do and you think he liked the public rebuke? Likely not. Jesus stayed there, and he went to the home of Mary uh, and Martha and Lazarus. And here's the interesting part. That lingering effect of Lazarus's resurrection all of a sudden created such a momentum that people just came to see Lazarus. I mean, do you mind trying to have a nice, nice meal? Like, we're going to have this huge banquet, and you got just people in every corner of the house trying to peek in your window watching you. Watching you. And they want to see Jesus. They want to see Lazarus. Well, Jesus stops at Bethany, but where do the rest of the pilgrims go? Often commentators and theologians wonder, was there enough time between Jesus' ascent up Jericho and, and what was going on there for the, for the whole city of Jerusalem to erupt the way they did on day one of the triumphal entry? I think Jesus rightly understood and knew what was going on. He stops. He, he stops at Bethany. He has the meal. There was a huge crowd in that area, but a bunch of the crowd of the Passover pilgrims continue on to Jerusalem. And guess what the question that they got to answer for everybody, which was, is he coming? And they would say, he is right over there. He is coming. Could you imagine the excitement that was going on in the life of the people of Israel? They heard he was healing. They heard, I mean, I bet there probably wasn't somebody that you could go to and, and say, I know someone who knew someone who, who got healed by Jesus. There were so many miracles Jesus did, the Bible says, that it can't even be written in, in scores of volumes. This is how impactful his messianic ministry was. But Jesus, at the triumphal entry, uh, he, he begins to act more messianic than any other time in his ministry. And it's the first time where he accepts and, and understands, and, and he understands it and embraces to the people, in front of the people, I am your Messiah. He goes to Bethany that morning. Now let's pause for a minute and just remember this in Genesis 3.15. One of the realities that the Jewish people lived with and that, that always came about right at the very end, and you probably know this verse very well in Genesis 3.15. It says, and this is, of course, right after the curse, and it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
Now, I can just tell you the reality is, is this verse, when Adam and Eve would have heard these words, and, and, and scores of Jews would have heard this, they weren't thinking, they weren't thinking, oh, he's going to relieve us from Rome's pressure. No, that what they were thinking and preparing for was, we need spiritual salvation, we have sinned. The Messiah was the one who could then come and restore all things and make relationships right. But the Jewish people up to their history at this point, they, they wanted to embrace a Messiah of their own making. And the Messiah of their own making was not a humble, suffering servant of Isaiah 55 or 53. He was going to come and he was going to die. The Jewish people had no place in their mind for a dying Savior, a dying Messiah. They had no theological framework for a second coming. There was just one coming, the coming of the Messiah. And all of their Jewish history and all their Jewish theology, all the Old Testament prophets pushed this one reality. But Jesus was working up a different reality of Genesis 3 where he was coming to save those who were spiritually lost. He wasn't just coming to save them from the oppression of Rome or any other dictatorial leader. He wanted people to know him. I can understand. This leads us right up to the point of the triumphal entry. All the buzz is going on in Jerusalem. Is he coming? Oh, he's coming. He's right over there. By the time that, if you think about it from Friday, all this time has placed between Saturday to get all this buzz going in the city. Because you've got Sabbath on the weekend. No one's going to travel a certain amount of Sabbath mileage because it was against the law, so they knew that they were going to be safe at some degree over in Bethany. And now, on Sunday morning, Jesus sets out, and this is the text in Luke chapter 19. It says, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, go into the village in front of you. Where on, on entering, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Now, just pause for a minute. This is really challenging in two fronts. If you go to ver uh, various commentators and theologians that describe the account of the untying of the colt. Okay? First of all, let me just clear this up out of your mind. The colt is a donkey, even though it's described as a colt. Okay? The colt is also described as a foal of a donkey. Okay? So don't think, okay, is it a horse or is it a donkey? It's a donkey. Okay? So clear that up out of your mind right away so you don't get sidetracked and try to Google everything while I'm talking. Okay? It's a colt, it's a donkey. Now the other reality is, is you're thinking, is this miraculous? There's two ways that people take it. One... That Jesus somehow, in his omniscience, somehow orchestrated a way that this individual, by the time they went there and asked for the colt, that the person would say, the, the donkey, he would say, oh, go ahead. Or it's possible in Jesus' earthly humanity that he was so understanding of his messianic, of who he was as the Messiah, and the understanding of Zechariah 9.9, Jesus set, could have set this up so that they understood and connected Zechariah 9 with the triumphal entry. See, Jesus is the most incredibly humble but the most incredibly wise individual and in understanding his messianic role 
Jesus understood what was going on when he asked them. Whether, whichever way you want to take it. I tend to kind of lean on the fact that Jesus in his humanity, uh, he knew what he was doing. He's making a deliberate connection between Zechariah 9, who the king who would humbly come on the donkey, and they bring the donkey to him. And that's what we have uh, in our text. They come and find it. And so as they're there, it says, so, so they, they untied it. Uh, now we're in verse number 32. So those who were sent away and found it, just as they were told, and as they were untying the colt, his owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing on their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it, and he rode along as they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You have to come to grips with the reality as a, as a, as a person that this was so climactic in the life of Jesus. Jesus was telling his disciples, I'm coming to Jerusalem to die. He comes to the city, and the city is erupted with, with joy, with blessings from Psalm 118, which is this hugely messianic psalm, and they're saying, blessed, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The kids are saying it. Everybody's dancing around. They're throwing down palm branches. He's riding on the donkey. Why the donkey? Because it was a sign of a, of a king who has conquered, not one who is conquering, that would be a horse, but one who has conquered that's a donkey. You come in peace. There's no one left. He signifies the coming king of the messianic title of Psalm 118, and all the people begin to just explode in excitement. We see, I want you to notice this. Even the Pharisees understood the magnitude of this event because in John chapter 12, verse 19, in this whole drama of the event, the Pharisees say this in John 12, 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone out after him. I mean, normally speaking, the Jerusalem area was probably roughly, some theologians or some commentators say roughly around 100,000 people. But at the time of Passover, it would swell to the millions from the, from the Passover pilgrims that would come. He says, look, the world has gone out after him. In this account, what you find is you find three groups of people at the triumphal entry, and we're just going to go through these somewhat quickly, but I think this is part of the point of the triumphal entry. The first grouping of people that you begin to understand is that Jesus came to declare himself as the messianic king of all the Old Testament prophets. If you can bank on one thing, is that all the prophets, both minor and major, talk about this focal point. The king will come. For long, long years of thousands of years of history, they said, you know what? I don't know if he's coming. They waited for this. Even on Jesus' birth, you recognize these small little statements from Zechariah and Anna, those who were gathered waiting for the consummation of Israel. They had long awaited this moment. They had long awaited to see or to declare this one who is Messiah. 
You know, here's the first group. Genuine disciples. Oh, the love of people who have a genuine, sincere reality of their faith. People who, as in Luke chapter 19, where Jesus could say to two of his disciples, among the, among the other 12, and of course, the broader aspect of those who were genuine disciples as well, who he could say, go do this, go untie this colt, and bring them back to me. And the immediate response was, whatever you want, Lord. I mean, here you have genuine disciples who have traveled with him. Uh, you have the 12 who had seen all kinds of miracles. Notice what would characterize them. They were so obedient. I mean, yes, did they struggle? Of course. They didn't understand certain things. But by and large, when they were confronted with the teachings of Jesus, Jesus corrected them. They became obedient to Jesus' teaching. They traveled with him. They put their life on the line with him. Where Jesus was, people saw them. And we know that based upon what happens to Peter during the trial, when other people recognize that Peter was with Jesus. They were obedient, and even Peter would say, I followed you even to my death. They were, they were totally submitted to him. They struggled, they had different times where they didn't fully understand, but they submitted their lives when Jesus accounted for their life, and you can remember, one by one, as Jesus found them, and he said, come and follow me. And they left, and they followed Jesus. They had lived a life for the last three and a half years with Jesus in a way that totally reshaped their understanding of the Old Testament. Could you imagine sitting around the fire having Jesus explain the Old Testament to you? When they finally reached the, the other side of the Mount of Olives, it was almost as if their heightened level of messianic appreciation was to such degree they knew who was with him. They knew what, they, they understood who Jesus was. They embraced it. And while they were going, they just burst out in song. <laughs> like, that's kind of what Christian people tend to do. Like, when they get really excited about stuff, all of a sudden it's like, I gotta sing! I know some of you do this in your car more than you do in public. But all of a sudden, you're just like, thank you, Lord, thank you. And all of a sudden, the whole crowd began to sing the Psalm 118. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I mean, what is this? Hosanna, Psalm 118 says, save us, save us. Oh, the irony of all of it. When Jesus is seeing that they're calling out Hosanna, and yet, it's not going to be but a short few days and this very crowd of celebratory nature will turn into cries of crucify him. Jesus knew that genuine disciples were not the only individuals that were, that were with him that day. But I think it's incredible when Jesus comes riding on this in Zechariah 9 that he understands the meaning, the timing of the, the presentation. I mean, is this not about of our God to do what he's, exactly what he says he's going to do when Daniel chapter 9, verse 26 says that when the anointed one was, will be cut off, Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, there was going to be a cutting off of the Messiah. He was going to die. And then there was this gap period that we call the church. And then eventually he's going to come, he's going to rapture the church, and it will set forth a whole string of historical events that is yet to take place that will arrive at the very kingdom of God. 
Jesus goes in. He knows genuine disciples aren't the only people that are with him. He also understands that there's a superficial crowd. That's why many of the Gospels say, and there were those in the crowd, some were like this. You'll hear these little textual notes that describe this because not everybody who was celebrating Psalm 118 was actually a follower of Jesus. So understand, when Jesus came over and they were presenting him as king, not everyone who was saying what they said really believed that what they were saying. See, the superficial crowd is characterized by a group of people who are often somewhat unpredictable. See, and this happens even today. Those people who want to claim that Jesus is their Messiah, Jesus is their king, but all of a sudden, at the most unpredictable moments, they say, I don't know if I want to do what he says there. I want to kind of do my own thing. See, the crowd that was celebrating him there would one day turn on him because the crowd was fickle and Jesus was driving this to the point of, uh, of them ha- having to choose between two things. You either choose me, that I'm the way, the truth, and the life, or you're going to follow this Pharisaic system that you've lived with for so long, that is a burden to you each and every day, and you are gonna, you're going to have to choose Not only were they unpredictable, they were totally inconsistent. What they said is is not often what they did. And can I just say to you, Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, as a committed, genuine, sincere follower, you you can't just be a person in the crowd because all of a sudden if it's like inconsistency, people will begin to wonder like, what are you? Like the worst part of the worst thing as a pastor over the years is to see people who claim Christianity, but by their fruits you could never convict them of it. That is a sad reality. We have to really take heart that we're not just a person in the crowd because being part of Jesus' clan seems to be popular at the moment and that that seems to be what everyone else is doing, so I'll just get on board with it. I'll tell you what, it doesn't take very long and you see whether they're genuine or not. And in this case, in the, in the triumphal entry, it only took days before the real reality set in. Often people began, they were inconsistent, they were self-serving. They wanted Jesus to overthrow Rome. They weren't necessarily sure about this whole Messiah come to save my sins portion. Then there was another group, the skeptics, and you see it in the very last point. He says, the Pharisees come to him in the crowd and they said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. There are plenty of skeptics of Christianity today. There are plenty of people who want to claim the name of Jesus who are just part of the crowd. But you will know those disciples who are genuine. You will know them by what? By their love, by their obedience, by their commitment, by their sacrifice, by by the way that they love the body of Christ. And I just ask you, each and every one of you, are you one of those? See, what Jesus displays in his messianic presentation at the triumphal entry is he comes over the hill, he understands that these three groups of people exist. There's genuine, there's superficial, and there's skeptics. And guess what? Here's one of the most amazing realities. He came to save all of them. Every skeptic that would say something, every disbeliever, every inconsistent person, even though they were fickle, he said, I want you to know me. He came to save them all in his messianic presentation. 
Christians, that message still rings true in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants us to share this truth with other people. No matter if it's a skeptic, whether it's an inconsistent or superficial individual who thinks maybe they're a believer in Christ, we have to live out the gospel and display a level of genuineness. And as Jesus walked into Jerusalem that day, he understood his messianic purpose. The crowds were hailing him as king, and yet the reality is it was only going to be a few days before that same a number in that same crowd would be saying, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. As you look at this, I hope that as you understand the triumphal entry, you will read about the, the works that go on right after Luke chapter 19 in the section that we're in, chapter 20, and you'll realize the woes to the Pharisees, all the teaching, and he's driving them, driving them, driving them to the point of decision. Will you take me as your Messiah? Or will you follow the Pharisees and their legalistic system of works? And when he finally did that, both the Sadducees, who he had already ticked off by, by cleansing the temple, and the Pharisees, who he had already made mad because he's taken away their legal judicial uh, system of works, they joined in connection in their hatred towards Jesus, both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they figured out a way to devise a plan where Judas would then agree to, where they would find Jesus, and it brings us to Good Friday that's coming up this week. And on that day of the triumphal entry, Jesus' heart was broken, and he says those same words in verse 44, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I had longed to gather you under my wings, but you refused. There are so many today that I think we had to look out onto in our world and say, please come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Jesus wept for the masses at Jerusalem that day because his heart longed for them to know and accept and embrace his messianic title, that he was the one, the only one, the, the way, the truth, and the life that could save their soul. Are you sharing that message with people that God has put into your life? Because Jesus wrote in that day, knowing what Hebrews 9 said, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes the judgment, he knew that we could be saved from our sin by the messianic work of the coming Messiah who shed his blood on the cross so that we could be saved. Rejoice. This Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us. Guess what? He did it through his son. And as we move in through, and I hope you do this through your week, you reflect on what's going on in the Passion Week, can I strongly encourage you, come to Good Friday service. This is a time for a reflection, an examination, thinking about what Jesus was willing to do for you and for me uh, that we could never do for ourselves. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much. You're kind, you're gracious. We see the drama of the Passion Week begin today. Lord, the story and the wisdom of Jesus put on display, understanding Zechariah 9, understanding all the prophets of Isaiah, he came to save us and to all and, and anyone who would repent and put their faith in him. Lord, help us to share this message about the true and one and only Messiah. In your name we pray, amen.